coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to Fort Hill Farms, a showplace in the Round Hill section of Greenwich, owned by Reinhard Seidenberg. It was designed by William F. Dominic, who also designed Christchurch Greenwich, Riverside School, and St. James Episcopal Church in New York City. On the judge's corner, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard reminisced in 1932 about the west side of Greenwich Avenue, a disastrous fire, a kidnapping case in 1874, a fish market and ice cream saloon, and more. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, Irwin Edwards wrote in 1919 about Greenwich's rivers and brooks after asking why Native Americans, European colonists, and the wealthy owners of beautiful estates came to Greenwich. Edwards pointed out that, quote, all came here for the same reasons, because of its location, its hills and vales, its woods, its brooks and rivers and its harbor, quote-unquote. On crimes and misdemeanors, in 1908, Michael Donahue was held in $1,000 bonds for burglarizing St. Mary's Parochial School and Dr. Piatti's stable. Even several teachers' desks were broken open with money allegedly taken. On Greenwich Before 2000, we'll travel back in history to the years 1890 through 1893. From all around the town, William Mead Keeler, editor of the Greenwich Observer, took issue in 1879 with the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in a sarcastic editorial. There's fantastic things happening at Greenwich's Bruce Museum in the 21st century, but it was announced way back on January 5th, 1912, that Robert M. Bruce's home would be used as an art museum. In February 1908, intrepid explorer Robert E. Perry lectured at Fair's Opera House in neighboring Portchester, New York, about his search for the North Pole. Many Greenwich residents attended. In 1908, Greenwich dog warden Barrett Jones was in Byram attempting to catch Mrs. John Gottschalk's St. Bernard, for it was untagged and unlicensed, but according to witnesses, it was quite amusing. It's Black History Month, You'll hear about Hester Mead, an African-American woman whose legacy in the 19th century is a unique painting she created of the Jabez Mead House that once stood on the corner of East Putnam Avenue and Indian Field Road. There's lots to see, lots to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of this extraordinary town, one of most America's most interesting and extraordinary and it's a place that, of course, we call home. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut, and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience. Coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, 
Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4600. Zero four, or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. 
Well, my friends, it's that time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's storied history to the Gilded Age, when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the greatest state's Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed history about the emergence of the greatest states during the Gilded Age. It's a book that I strongly recommend. Well, on today's show, you are going to hear about Fort Hills Farm. Its principal owner was Reinhard Seidenberg, the architect was William H. Dominic, and the construction date of this great estate was 1917 to 1920, and the story goes as follows. In 1927, the house belonging to Reinhard Seidenberg, who lived from 1876 to 1927, was described in his obituary in the New York Times as, quote, a showplace in the Round Hill section, unquote, of Greenwich. A member of the cotton brokerage firm of Reinhard Seidenberg and Company of New York, he had just died, quote, following a stroke of apoplexy, unquote, at the relatively early age of 51. For a number of summers, he and his wife, Paula, had rented in Greenwich and in 1914 decided to purchase Harriet Wilson's more than 82 acres of land, consisting mainly of apple orchards. They then proceeded to plan for their own summer home there, and one later mentioned at his death. Seidenberg chose as his architect William F. Dominic, well-known in his day for designing many private residences and other types of buildings as well among them Riverside School and Christ Church in Greenwich and St. James Episcopal Church in New York City. Holbeck Construction Company of Greenwich was the builder. The result is a grand manor house, Tudor in style, of stone and half-timber construction. The Seidenbergs named their property Fort Hills Farm because his parents lived in a section of Staten Island known as Fort Hills. Construction began on the outbuildings first in 1917, but as it was thought to be unpatriotic to use large numbers of men and the necessary materials to complete the work during World War I, the main house was not finished until 1920. In the meantime, the Seidenbergs and their four children lived in the superintendent's quarters while the servants used the garage. The manor house remains today an imposing, extremely well-planned and constructed building, approached by a roadway bordered by tall evergreens and huge rhododendrons. As seen from the, the front or the north side, the first story is built of granite, all of which came from a quarry on the property that is now completely overgrown or grown over. Italian stonemasons were hired to do the work. The half-timbered frame construction of the second story overhangs the first, and it not only gives a picturesque effect, but also increases the floor space for the bedrooms there. The long lines of the roof, which is made of variegated rough slate, are broken by the gables and the five strong brick chimneys. The single chimney of the living room, with its stone-stepped offsets, seems to anchor the house firmly at that end, balancing the low roof of the service wing at the other. In the angle formed by that wing, the stonework of the first story has been continued up to form the stair tower. 
and there as in interesting distribution of casement windows at various levels. The roof lines have been softened from their severe straightness by subtly giving them the effect of the sagging that age produces, and both the irregular design of the timber beams and the rough texture of the stucco between them add to that effect. The south side of the house overlooks beautiful gardens and landscaping. Two levels of terraces were originally banked with honeysuckle and rambling roses, and there was a perennial garden backed by shrubbery, as well as large areas of lawn. Steps at both ends connected the top, of the top with the bottom level. Doors on this side of the house open onto a terrace of tile and flagstone that extends the length of the building and is covered by one end by a wing which thus forms a part of the porch. Inside, one of the most interesting features of the house is the handsome oak paneling throughout much of the first floor. The main entrance opens into a large hall with its own fireplace, a wide carved staircase leading upstairs, and various closets and other wall compartments hidden behind the wood facade. A carved oak panel with an open arch up the, uh, the center of the doors on either side divides the entrance hall from the living room, but serves in effect to draw the visitor from one large space to the other. This partition was on occasion removed to accommodate large gatherings. In the living room, there is also a fireplace approached by a step and flanked by wooden seats, once covered with cushions. The ceiling is beamed. Bookcases along one wall were built to conceal an organ, but it was never purchased. A small intimate study contains a mantle carved with the initials of Mr. and Mrs. Seidenberg. The Seidenberg coat of arms crowns the library fireplace. In the latter room, there are four particularly interesting wood carvings along the cornice of the walls. A musician playing a lute, a writer, an artist, an artist painting with palette and brush, and a man reading a book. The dining room, originally painted a soft green, opens onto a bright sun porch of wood, plaster and stone, with a tile floor. Throughout the first floor, there are impressive examples of stained glass and leaded windows, many inset with colorful medallions depicting animals, objects, or people. The service wing contains a spacious kitchen, its walls lined with varnished cabinets. The servant's dining room, a large pantry with bins big enough for a barrel of flour, sugar, or the like, a dumb waiter, a luggage elevator, and a safe for silver, as big as a closet. In the basement, there is a sizable playroom or billiard room with a fireplace. This room was enjoyed by Seidenberg as well as by the children, who sometimes performed plays on a stage at one end of the room. On that level, there was another room which the children thought to be quote-unquote secret because they were never permitted to go into it. It was a storage space for the gas kept on hand in case the electricity failed. The fixtures for gas lighting were recessed in little cabinets in the walls upstairs. The rest of the basement is a labyrinth of rooms, a laundry, the huge original gas dryer is still there, a wine cellar, coal storage rooms, enough coal was brought in during one week each summer to last the whole winter, a wood storage room, a furnace room, a mud room, a preserves closet, and other miscellaneous storage rooms. A central vacuum cleaner served the entire house. 
Most of the bedrooms are on the second floor. They include the master suite with its two bathrooms, four full-sized bedrooms for the children, two guest rooms, one called the green room, and one the chapel room because of its angled ceiling. And the sleeping porches where the windows could be opened by pushing the sashes up into the attic walls. The fresh air of the porches was thought to be very healthy, especially for growing children. Each bedroom door has a different knocker depicting a character or a scene from a book. Five servants' bedrooms are also on this floor, each with its own wash basin. They are connected by stairs with the kitchen and other parts of the service wing downstairs. On the third floor, an enormous room with a fireplace was considered by the children to be a wonderful place to play, as in it were kept, among other things, costumes and trunks. There were two bathrooms and three bedrooms besides, including the view room, so named because the distance one could see from its windows. The governess slept in one of these bedrooms. Fort Hill Farms was never a year-round residence for the Seidenberg family. Their New York City apartment was their permanent home, and they came out to Greenwich to live from May until November. During the period when school was in session, the children accompanied their father to New York on the train in the morning and returned each afternoon. During the rest of the year, the family came only for weekends and holidays, while several servants stayed to watch over the house during the week. When everyone was in residence, however, a number of servants were on hand to take care of the family's requirements. There was a butler, a cook, a kitchen maid, a parlor maid, the lady's maid who spent much of her time ironing in the second-floor sewing room, a laundress, a chambermaid, a houseman, a chauffeur, and a man who lived in the coop and took care of the pigeons. The outbuildings were substantial, especially the one which included the superintendent's quarters on its left side, a barn for horses and cows in the center, and on the right, the chauffeur's quarters above and the garage below. In the garage, there were areas for carriages and also for the summer and winter automobile bodies. This building is now a private residence, as is another sizable barn. In addition, there were two pump houses, a coop, and a pigsty. The trees, flowers, and grounds were well cared for. There was a tennis court down from the second level behind the house and bridle paths through the woods. The lifestyle made possible by such a house with its ground and stuff was an, envi an enviable one indeed. According to the Greenwich News and Graphic, quote, The first brilliant society wedding of the early fall season, unquote, in 1926, was Paula Seidenberg's, one of the two daughters, with, and, quote, a large reception followed the, the, the ceremony, unquote. This event took place in the gardens. Her sister Kitty's coming out party was also held at Fort Hills Farm, and on this occasion, the hall panels were removed for dancing. When she was married, the gardens were again the site for the reception. As was true of many of the Greenwich estates, the Seidenberg's home was not merely a show place. It was also a working farm. There were fruit orchards of quince, crab apples, peaches and apples, and a vegetable garden which produced everything the family needed. Cows supplied milk, and there were usually a carriage horse, a workhorse, three or four cows, a pig, chickens, ducks, and pigeons in residence. 
as is also true of so many of these estates. Although the houses have survived largely intact, the same is not true of the land. In 1922, 33 of the original Seidenberg Acres went to the newly formed Round Hill Club. In 1933, Mrs. Seidenberg divided approximately 34 acres among her two daughters and a surviving son. When she sold the house itself in 1937, the sale included almost 15 acres. Today, this imposing manor house is left with just under three. The Great Estate Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library System. You can go to your favorite or your nearest branch of the Greenwich Library. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy, my recommendation would be to visit the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at GreenwichHistory.org, or you can call 203-869-6899, or you could also contact your favorite book vendor. Most kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays. Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. On February 14, 2023, the Greenwich Historical Society will partner with the Byram Schubert Public Library and Greenwich Academy to host a local transcribathon as part of a nationwide celebration of Douglas Day, marking the birth of Frederick Douglass. Douglas Day is an annual program organized by the Center for Black Digital Research and Zoomiverse, in which thousands of people gather to help create new and freely available resources for learning about black history. A different collection of black history is featured each year, and the Douglas Day Transcribathon helps create new digital resources for African-American history. All materials created are made free and open to all. 
Douglas Day 2023 will be dedicated to transcribing the enriching papers of Mary Ann Shad Carey, who lived from 1823 to 1893, one of the earliest black women to edit a newspaper, serve as a Civil War recruiter, attend law school, and much more. Douglas Day organizers are partnering, partnering with the Archives of Ontario, Libraries and Archives Canada, and many others to present newly digitized collections from Shad Carey's long, remarkable life. Well, my friends at the Greenwich Historical Society have some great news. A new exhibit is on its way, and it's one that you really need to come and see. Sports More Than Just a Game will open on March 8th, 2023, and it will close on September 3rd, 2023. It's a dynamic exhibition of the local history of sporting culture, fandom, and celebrity that explores how Greenwich, Connecticut, and its surrounding communities broke boundaries, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletic achievement. Again, this is sports more than just a game. It's the next terrific exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and you've really got to come and see it. Now, to learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could also call for more information at area code 203-869-6899. <laughs> Well, my friends, Greenwich Before 2000 is a book that was published as an updated and revised edition of an earlier Greenwich history book titled Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Going through 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society. It was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. His many philanthropic bequests over the years have advanced the preservation of the town's history, and for that we are very, very grateful as always. On today's show, we are going to feature selections from Greenwich Before 2000, covering the years 1890 through 1893. So sit back, relax, and follow along. Starting in 1890, in April of that year, the Greenwich Gas and Electric Lighting Company built a generator on Steamboat Road. In August 16th of, um, of that year, Edwin N. Schofield is given permission to use the land on the easterly side of the Mianas River near the Post Road Bridge for factory purposes. In September of that year, the first annual horse show, the FET, I hope I pronounce this properly, FET, I'm going to spell this, H-I-P-P-I-Q-U-E, <laughs> is held at Belhaven near the casino, starting with a procession at Putz Hill. In October 6 of that year, 1890, at the annual town meeting, a committee is appointed to investigate town affairs for the first time. Hmm. October 22nd, the unveiling of the monument to the memory of soldiers and sailors of the Civil War at the corner of Putnam and Maple Avenues is held with day-long festivities. The monument cost $6,000 and was paid for with a town tax. By the way, that monument is still where it was placed at that time. You can see it every time you drive past the uh, Second Congregational Church on East Putnam Avenue as you go up um, on uh, Maple Avenue. You'll see it over uh, if you're driving north on the right-hand side. 
Moving along on September, or excuse me, December 10th, electricity for street lighting is accepted by a special borough meeting. It will be furnished by the Greenwich Gas and Electric Lighting Company, a non-resident, quote, foreign-run and funded firm, unquote. Oh my, that sounds ominous. Um, <laughs> moving along to the year 1891 from Greenwich before 2000, the East Portchester Fire Company is formed. A hand engine and horse carriage is it, it cost three hundred and forty dollars. It's uh, is its first equipment. Of course, that fire company is now known as the Byram uh, Fire Company. In eighteen ninety two, January twelfth, the Volunteer Hose and Chemical Company Number no. Two is organized on Lower Greenwich Avenue. Its first piece of equipment is a four wheeled hand drawn hose pumper. On April 11, 1892, the Indian Harbor Yacht Club is incorporated. On October 3rd, the town meeting appropriates $6,000 for the completion of the public dock on Steamboat Road. And on October 3rd of that year, 1892, the town meeting's investigating committee reports finding errors in bookkeeping and suggests that a radical change be made in the method of keeping the town treasurer's accounts. Hmm. Now we move along to the year 1893 from Greenwich before 2000. In May of that year, Rockridge Farm, formerly the Zacchaeus Mead Farm, consisting of 62 acres, is purchased by Nathaniel Witherell, who moves his summer homes for poor children and for shop girls of New York City there. On May 18th, 1893, the General Assembly authorizes the East Portchester School District, that area known as Byram, of course, today, to issue bonds at 5% payable semi-annually for 20 years to, find, to fund indebtedness uh, of the district and to build a new schoolhouse. Moving along to June 17 of that year, the Bruce Memorial Home on Robert Bruce's estate is dedicated to the memory of his three children and will give, quote, comfort and pleasure to many people of the city unable to afford a country vacation, unquote. And by the way, it was demolished when the Connecticut Turnpike, I-95, was built and laid through. On July 28th, the Greenwich Tramway Company is incorporated with a license to use horses, cables, and electricity to run from Byram Bridge to Stamford. On the July 4 weekend of 1893, President Cleveland has a successful operation for mouth cancer aboard the Oneida, E.C. Benedict's yacht somewhere in Long Island Sound. On August 31st, President Cleveland and party arrive in Greenwich aboard the Oneida and have lunch with E.C. Benedict. Villagers remark at how well the president looks. And finally, on, our, uh, on August 26, 1893, changes are made to the roof design of the Beating House School District's new building on Greenwich Avenue to avoid an interruption of the view of E.C. Benedict from his Putnam Avenue home. Benedict offers to help pay for a separate gymnasium to replace the one planned for the third floor. And that, my friends, all comes from Greenwich Before 2000. You can borrow that book from any branch of the Greenwich Library here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, my advice to you would be to first go online and to visit GreenwichLibrary.org and conduct your search there. <music> 
You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and into the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He wrote under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale. No idea where that came from. (laughs) And he did that when he was writing about what was called or what he called rather Cracker Barrel stuff. He did that through his column, The Judge's Corner. Years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's published columns, organized them in compendium form as a terrific book that I recommend to you called Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Well, in today's show, we're going to feature column number 134, which is dated April 21st, 1932. The title of this article by Judge Hubbard is The West Side of Greenwich Avenue, Fish Market and Ice Cream Salon, Lion Voorhees Tract, Disastrous Fire, Kidnapping Case of 1874, The Tragic House, and the story goes as follows. On the west side of Greenwich Avenue, south of what was described last week, came the property of Captain William L. Lyon. At the extreme north end, on the line with the sidewalk, John H. Merritt ran a fish market and ice cream saloon during Civil War days. John and his father were both fishermen, and much of their stock in trade, if not all of it, was the result of their personal efforts with rod and line, lobster traps, and clam hose. Ice cream was a new delicacy in those days, homemade with eggs and cream and frozen in those early brack-baking freezers that required plenty of energy and patience. It was a summer product, rarely appearing in the winter months, and then only in families of wealth or in city hotels. But the ice cream saloon was quite remote from the fish counter, separated by a narrow hall. When in 1889 the excavation was made for the Trust Company building at 96 Greenwich Avenue, many clam shells were dug up, giving a chance for a local archaeologist to discourse on the discovery of an Indian camp ground of centuries earlier. Many years before 1889, The John Merritt building had been moved across the street, and as Elias S. Peck's plumbing shop stood there until two or three years ago, when it gave way to the new medical building. Captain William L. Lyon was a retired shipmaster, of whom much has been said in this column. He was the first warden of the borough. He lived in what was later and for many years the home of John Voorhees, standing on the site of the Pickwick Theatre. 
The land on the avenue was of little use to the captain, and on one occasion he offered it to Mr. Held for $1,800 and traded out for in meat, as in the meat that, that it's edible. <laughs> All right, on with the story. Mr. Held later became quite an operator in real estate, but this opportunity to invest was declined. I wonder why. The picket fence that enclosed this tract from the street, extending from the old Trust Company building, now the Wellworth Department Store, to the, Drenic, uh, the Greenwich Drug Store, will be recalled by many of our readers. It did not disappear until about 22 years ago, when Mr. Voorhees brought it in the spring of 1868. It was an open space and many years later was used as a market garden by the late Willis T. Mead. South of the Lion Voorhees Tract, and on the side of the Greenwich Drugstore, that would be at 130 Greenwich Avenue, was the home for many years of George W. Hunt. He was one of our early commuters, being a bank teller in New York. The house was a modest affair and now stands on the south side of Lewis Street Extension. Mr. Hunt and his wife were devoted to flowers in their front yard and closed from the street by a white picket fence was a riot of color in the summer season. He sold the place for $12,000 and was said to have invested it all at the initial price in the stock of the old Standard Oil Trust, from which investment, if held, must have enriched his family. On the spot, John H. Ray built his famous carriage repository with customers for many miles around. Here, the, a disastrous fire of September 1900 started, consuming the St. Mary's Church edifice and several nearby buildings. Restoring the church with the present stone edifice was not delayed, but the other lots remained vacant for two or three years. Later, the present three brick buildings for stores and tenements were built, including the one overlooking the church property, by Harry Eddy, and called the House of a Thousand Windows. Hmm, it must have been quite nice. I'm at the story. <laughs> In 1854, the land extending from the Hunt property to the home of George Sillick, torn down two or three years ago, was occupied by three houses, one of them at the north end with pillars in front. Here lived Mrs. Charlotte Rogers. One of the other houses in 1860 was occupied by Daniel Merritt Mead, the author of the first history of the town, published in 1857. The other house was later, in 1869, owned and occupied by Silas D. Benson. Prior to 1866, Charles W. Knapp was the owner of the two acres, with one house which he sold to Henry Held, which renders it probable that the other two houses were built by Mr. Held. His son Henry lived in one of the houses as owner until February 1869, when he sold it to Silas Benson at an advanced price of $12,500. The George Sillick House was built before the Civil War. It stood near the corner of what was afterwards West Elm Street. But for many years, it was a dead-end driftway affording an approach to William Henry Meade's carpenter shop, which occupied the site of Dr. Griswold's home. Later, the road was laid out across the Benedict Land to the Field Point Road and was then accepted by the borough as a public highway and took the name it now bears, which would be West Elm Street. 
In the year of the widening, all the land from West Elm Street to the Havemeyer School property was a part of the farm of Silas Merwin Mead. But in 1868, Joseph E. Russell, who lived on Grigg Street, bought an acre for $4,000, sold some of the rear and built the large frame building with the dooryard stores south of the Trust Company building, which is at 240 Greenwich Avenue. He was a prominent man in town, and after his death, his son, with the same name, was judge of probate for 10 years. On what is now the parking space on West Elm Street, Mr. Russell built a carriage shop, which was later moved to the corner and remained there until the present Trust Company building was erected. After it was moved to the corner, the old shop was devoted to many uses. In the early 70s, that would be the 1870s, the basement was used as a local courtroom, and here in December 1874 was tried the famous Trumpy kidnapping case. For a time, two stores occupied the first floor with a half dozen steps to reach them. Upstairs were apartments, and at one time, the basement was used for town meetings and again as a military drill room. Finally, the Greenwich Graphic made a press room of the basement, and the elder Mitchell converted the entire first floor into an antique and second-hand furniture store. The community rejoiced when, about 15 years ago, the new Trust Company building took its place. Below the Russell property, Merwin Mead built a house, afterwards moved back from the street and still in use. Forty-seven years ago, it was called the Tragedy House, not because anything very startling happened in it, but because those who lived there in 1885 suffered a shock from which they never recovered. J. Augustus Johnson owned the house. His wife, his son, Barclay, daughter Eleanor, and little Tristan, three years old, constituted the family. On that beautiful spring day, Barclay planned an outing at Indian Harbor for all the family. The nurse in charge of the baby refused to go. Did she suspect something beyond the usual? As the sun was setting that afternoon, three dead bodies were carried up the front steps of that mansard-roofed house. Barclay had shot his mother, his sister, and himself. The sorrowful memory of that fateful day remains only with a few, but often comes an inquiry concerning the three graves side by side in the cemetery of the Second Congregational Church. Quote-unquote, did they die in a railroad accident or were they drowned in a sea, uh, in a sea catastrophe? Unquote. Only as an answer to such ones is this story told, and that's signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. The First Congregational Church of Old Greenwich invites you to enjoy two free self-guided online history tours. These are really fantastic. The church was founded in 1665, incidentally, by my ancestors, among others. One tour is of the church cemetery, the one that is located off of Sound Beach Avenue. The other is a tour of the wonderful stained glass windows of the church located in Old Greenwich. You know, they tell quite a story about the influences that culminated in driving some people from Europe to America. And in the chapel, they tell the story of the landing of the settlers here in the year 1640 and the development of the first church in Greenwich, Connecticut. You can learn more by going to the First Congregational Church's 
website, which is fccog.org. When you see the menu at the top, go to About Us and then look under the items under Our History. And you will see our self-guided audio tours. And um, you can look at those from your smartphone, from your laptop, whatever the case may be. I think you'll enjoy it. The Greenwich Historical Society presents a student-curated exhibit highlighting personal family stories and artifacts gathered as part of the My Story, Our Future project, a a collaborative initiative organized by the India Cultural Center and the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. The project aims to collect and contribute stories about South Asian American youth identity in Connecticut in support of the state's mandated K-12 Asian American Pacific Islander curriculum. Students participate spent the fall of 2022 learning to interview family members on their experiences as immigrants to North America from South Asia. The exhibit will be on view in the Historical Society Museum lobby from February 13th to the 26th. And you can learn more about My Story, Our Future, South Asian American Youth Voices of Connecticut by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. Well, my friends, Greenwich Life as it is and was, was a column that was penned by Erwin Edwards. He was the co-founder of the Greenwich Graphic, an early newspaper here in Greenwich, Connecticut. The story that I'm sharing with you today comes from the Friday, January 31st, 1919 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. There were two papers that uh, merged uh, together. And the title of this Peace is the Rivers and Brooks of Greenwich. Why was this section of New England the home of many tribes and Indians? Why was Horseneck now Greenwich looked upon with so much favor for a settlement by the colonists? Why are there in Greenwich today so many, many wealthy men who own beautiful estates within its borders? All came here for the same reason, because of its location, its hills and its vales, its woods, its brooks, and rivers, and its harbor. In the early period, trout and salmon were in the streams. Game of all kinds that live in this climate were along the banks, while the sound furnished an abundance of fish, oysters, and clams. But perhaps the chief allurement of this locality, a feature that particularly attracted the early settlers, was its rivers and brooks. There were so many within a small territory. It is quite true that no other section in New England within the same limits had so many waterways. Greenwich covers an area of about 50 square miles. It's about seven miles from the New York state line to Stamford, and about seven miles more or less from the Sound to the New York state line, the boundary on the north. Within that confine, there are two rivers and three good-sized brooks, with a number of smaller ones. At one time, there were three brooks in what is now the borough of Greenwich that was before it was so thickly settled as it is today. On the west side of the town, sometimes forming the boundary between New York State and Greenwich, is the Byram River. 
Near the center of the town runs the Mianus River, and in between these two streams are three brooks, known as East and West Brother and Horseneck Brooks. The Byron River, which is about 12 miles long as the crow flies, rises in New York State and zigzags here and there across to Connecticut, and for a short distance forms the boundary between the two states. Its name, Byram, was really given to it by the Indians, although it is not an Indian word, but became associated with the Red Man in this way. Port Chester was known in settler days as salt pits. Along the river, and particularly at salt pits, rum could be obtained in large quantities or by the glass. Quote, where are you going, unquote, would often be asked of the Indians when headed that way. The reply would be, quote, going to buy rum, meaning going to buy rum. And so it became quite common when referring to the river to say, quote, going to buy rum, unquote, until after a while that name became so associated with the river that it was so-called. Hmm. The Mayanus was a larger stream than the Byram in Indian days and was just about the same length. That, too, has its source in New York and runs for a short distance in that state. It turned the wheels of more mills than the Byram when those streams were at their busiest for the colonists. But like the Byram, its flow for one reason or another has been very much diminished, until today in the summer time, when some places it is but a brook. The mills along its course are all gone now, with perhaps the exception of one or two, the old grist mill at Riverbank being still in operation just as it was before and during the Revolutionary War. It was the Indians who gave it its name. They called it Mayanos, and that was spelled M-Y-A-N-O-S, meaning, quote, sweet water, unquote, or beautiful stream. Recently, the New York and New Haven Road has come into control of it and will soon build a dam across the river, just above the bridge at the Post Road, where the railroad company will impound the waters into a big pond for use in its powerhouse at Cascob, about a mile away. The East and West Brother Brooks were years ago splendid trout streams, and in the springtime their flow was of some size. Horseneck Brook was the biggest of all these rivulets, and it too has its source near the New York State Line. It flows down after tumbling over dams and meets the harbor at what is known as the Shore Road. It is on the west side of Greenwich, and the Byram River is only from three to four miles away at any point along its course. It was called Horseneck Brook, so we have been informed, because it emptied into what is now Greenwich Harbor, which is the neck of the horse, which the contour of the coast resembles from Belhaven to Sound Beach. Just what it would have meant if the rivers and brooks of Greenwich flowed in the same volume now that they did in settler days can hardly be imagined. Electricity will in the very near future be used for lighting, for heating, and for power. These two rivers, and yes, the brooks could too could have been made 
as useful in the near future if the flow had remained as in those early times. They were to the colonists when their waters turned the wheels of so many mills along the banks. Yes, those rivers could have been harnessed in the same way by dams and could have been made to whirl the modern turbine and to furnish the power to generate the electricity for the use of the town, if conditions had remained the same. But, of course, it is not to be thought of that these rivers can ever come back and pay as important a part as they did in the years gone by in the settlement of Greenwich. Well, my friends, the southeastern section of Greenwich's Union Cemetery, which is off of Millbank Avenue, was set aside for the burial of blacks or African-Americans. Robert W. Meade deeded the land for the use forever as a burying ground. And I quote, the southern part of said lot 23 is to be set apart by said committee for the internment of people of color and such portion as said committee may deem advisable to sell in burial lots to people of color at a rate not exceeding one cent the square foot. Lots numbers 12 and 13 are to be reserved for free ground if required, unquote. Now, one of the worn marble gravestones marks the final resting place of Hester Bush Mead, and she was the daughter of Candace Bush. They are actually buried next to each other as their gravestones um, uh, mark the spot. Now, Hester's name does not appear in the roster of uh, famous persons in Greenwich history, and nor is she uh, listed in Spencer P. Mead's uh, family genealogy book. Now, Hester Bush Mead is the direct descendant of slaves who were emancipated and made free when Connecticut, with other New England states, established for all time the abolition of slavery in the late 18th century. Now, Candace Bush was her mother, and Candace was a slave in the David Bush household. Now, Mr. Bush, who of course is no relation to President Bush or his family, owned what we preserve today as the Bush Holly House, the headquarters of the Greenwich Historical Society. Candace's name appears in David Bush's estate in 1797, and Hester was born there the following year. We believe that Hester married a free black man or African-American man who was emancipated. Our primary interest in Hester centers on a really wonderful, beautiful watercolor of one of our family ancestral houses. A relative of mine in Massachusetts who owned the painting um, said that uh, this fine example of early American folk art on woven paper was created by a black woman who was employed by the Jabez Mead family and dates from 1840 to 1860, sometime in that area. Now, the Jabez Mead house, uh, house uh, was built circa 1840, and it stood on the corner of East Putnam Avenue and Indian Field Road. Uh, the the Sunoco Station, actually, um, if you've pumped gas there, uh, is the location of where the, the house once stood. The farm encompassed all of Millbrook and uh, the lands up to the base of, um, of Putts Hill. Now, the, the house was later demolished, um, I believe, in 1953 when East Putnam Avenue was widened. We believe that Hester Bush Mead um, is the artist. Uh, the, uh, the work is not signed. Hester died on March 2nd, 1864. Her will is uh, in the files of the Greenwich Probate Court, and it leaves her few belongings to her granddaughters, Martha and Julia, and ordered, quote, good tombstones to be put up for herself and her mother, unquote. 
Um, the austere appearance of uh, her marker, I think, is a bit deceiving, um, especially since we do attribute uh, Hester as uh, being the uh, the artist behind that work of art. By the way, um, after my relative um, up in uh, Sheffield, Massachusetts, passed away, um, I alerted uh, the Greenwich Historical Society of this particular work of art, and I'm very, very pleased to say that um, after my relative died, uh, that um, it was acquired, and it is now in the collections of the Greenwich Historical Society. The will of uh, Hester Bush Mead, uh, the daughter of Candace Bush, um, is in uh, is book A, pages 410 to 411 in the probate court of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's dated March 7th, 1864. It's not very long. I'm just going to read most of this for you, and it reads as follows. I, Hester Mead, of the town of Greenwich County of Fairfield in the state of Connecticut, do now make this my last will and testament. I direct my executor hereafter named to collect all my just dues and pay all my just debts, to cause to be erected a good tombstone over the grave of my mother and also one for myself. I, all, I give and bequeath to my granddaughter, Martha Mead, all my wearing apparel and bedding, and I direct my executor to deliver them to her at such time or times as he may think best. I give and bequeath the residue of my estate after paying my funeral expenses and the cost of the tombstones above named to my two granddaughters, Martha Mead and Julia Mead. To them, their heirs and assigns forever shall be divided between them in the ratio of two to three or two thirds for Martha and one third for Julia to and to be paid to them when they shall respectively become of lawful age. If either of them shall die at, before receiving her share, then the whole amount shall be given to the other. I now constitute and appoint Philander Button, executor of my last will and testament. And if I can interject here, Philander Button was the uh, headmaster uh, or principal, if you will, of uh, Greenwich Academy. And uh, he was the son-in-law of uh, Dr. Darius Mead, who was the leader of the initiative that led to the founding of Greenwich Academy in the early 19th century. Uh, and to go back to Hester's will, she says, in witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and seal this first day of March, A.D. 1864, signed, sealed, and delivered by the testatrix to be her last will and testament in the presence of us, who at her request hereunto subscribe our names as witnesses in her presence and in the presence of each other. And it's dated March 7th, 1864. And the names uh, that are listed here are Clarissa Mead, Julia Button, who was the wife of uh, Philander Button, uh, and let's see, uh, Lydia M. Button, and, um, and, and that's it. So, uh, and uh, James H. Brush was the uh, probate court um, at that time. This uh, particular picture of, um, of the Jebus Mead homestead that once stood at the corner of East Putnam Avenue and, uh, and uh, Indian Field Road um, is one. We do have that online and uh, we do have it on uh, today's uh, post on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons blogspot.com. The original of this painting, as I said before, is in very good hands. Uh, with the Greenwich Historical Society. Well, my friends, we just completed the celebrations and observances of uh, Chinese Lunar New Year, and um, I wanted to share with you an editorial that appeared in the February 13th, 1879 edition of the Greenwich Observer. This was Greenwich's first newspaper. William Mead Keeler was the um, editor, 
and uh, the paper was issued every Thursday, um, and uh, as it says, devoted to the interests of Greenwich and vicinity. By the way, a one-year subscription was a dollar fifty, and six months was seventy-five cents. Um, three months was thirty-seven cents, all in advance, of course. <laughs> so, anyway, but um, I wanted to read to you a very important uh, editorial that uh, William Mead Keeler wrote, and it was published, and um, it, it concerns uh, what is called a quote-unquote the Chinese question. Now, this was the period where the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, was um, passed by Congress in Washington, D.C. I think it was one of the uglier pieces of um, legislation that was um, uh, forbidding uh, Chinese uh, people from um, immigrating to um, uh, to the United States um, is one that is still remembered. And um, uh, on my other podcast, uh, which was Asia Today and Beyond with Jeffrey Bingham Mead that we have brought back, um, this was a, a topic that was frequently discussed with uh, my many guests over the years. Uh, I, I happen to think that this um, uh, editorial, which I will uh, share with you, uh, was quite spot on. Without any further ado, let me just share this with you. Again, this is the Chinese question. The passage by Congress of the anti-Chinese law is now the subject of public discussion. This law provides that no ship shall bring more than 15 of the Chinese to this country. It seems the United States government does not like the shape of their eyes, nor the length of their hair, nor the size of their feet, well enough to receive them in large numbers. It objects to the Chinamen being so economical, sending their money to their own country instead of investing it in this, and refusing to intermarry among Americans. It says they do wrong in transporting their dead to the mother country instead of patronizing our graveyards, pronounces them lepers and an evil to America, and finally legislates on the evil in to the tomb of receiving only 15 of them on such ship. It seems to us that if they are an evil, they should be excluded, hopefully. This law says that they are, and by its act makes it only a question of time as to the spread of that evil. <laughs> 15 on a ship will flood the country with them in just doubts uh, the time that 30 would. We may as well let 25 smallpox patients walk our streets as 15. If it is a detriment to our welfare, stop it entirely. If they are good enough to emigrate 15 to a ship, they are good enough to come by the 50s. If Congress proposes to limit the number of arrivals in this manner, what will it do in the event of just twice the number of vessels put on the sea to ply between China and San Francisco? It costs our nation tens of thousands of lives and uncounted treasures to learn that a black is as good as a white, and it should cost it but a single thought to learn that a Chinaman is better than an American if he behaves himself better. We cannot understand why it should be angry because they will not bury their dead here. If they are not good enough for Americans to admit among them while living, they certainly ought not to covet their bodies for our graveyards when they are dead. What if they will not intermarry with us. Every man ought to have a choice of wife. Nobody marries just 
the one you pick out for him, commerce has got under such swift strides that the Chinese cannot be kept out. The founders of our government opened the gates for all foreigners, and Congress may as well legislate to stop the sun, the moon, and the stars as to stop emigration from England, Ireland, France, Norway, Italy, Persia, Japan, or China. Their inhabitants will come here as we go there, and the time will always be, legislation or no legislation, when the bright blue sea shall be the bearer of all nationalities on their journeyings to and from continent to continent, from the old world to the new. America is too large to build around it another Chinese wall. The gates, which long closed in the parapet of China, have been swung aside, and the man, man of America walks amid the celestials, unbolested and free, to enjoy the privileges of a country, the natural riches of which exceed any land on the planet. This decree of Congress, if successful, would shut out the most magnificent opportunity ever offered to a people for the nation that is finally most friendly with China and gets a place in her commerce becomes ultimately the first nation of the world. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, to say the least, my friends, you have probably been seeing in the various news outlets um, here in Greenwich and beyond that a lot is going on over at the Bruce Museum campus. It's a lot of very exciting news that is coming out. The uh, the enlarged museum that we are anticipating opening to the public uh, this coming spring 2023. Well, I wanted to share with you um, a news item that appeared on the Friday, January 5th, 1912 edition of the Greenwich Graphic. It announces to the public and therefore to the world, we could say, um, the uh, the Bruce Homestead to be used for an art museum. This was the original announcement. And it says to be converted for purpose for which Mr. Bruce deeded it to the town. And it goes as follows. The beautiful Bruce Homestead, which was given to the town of Greenwich by the late Robert M. Bruce, uh, located in Bruce Memorial Park, also given by Mr. Bruce to the town, is about to be converted for the purposes for which Mr. Bruce intended it, a natural history, historical, and art museum for the use of the public. Mr. Bruce left $50,000 as a fund to furnish, equip, and make such alterations as may be necessary to suitably change the house to adapt it to the purposes for which the giver intended it. The trustees of this fund are E.C. Benedict, W.J. Smith, E.C. Converse, William H. Truesdale of Greenwich, and see, L. Schofield of Stamford, who have recently received securities in the amount above named to carry out the intention referred to. 
they have issued the following circular explanatory of their plans and requesting suggestions from others who may be inclined to interest themselves in the project and inviting the hearty cooperation of the public who are to benefit from the liberal and most commendable project. And this goes as follows. The trustees are about to take preliminary steps, and soon it may be expected that the Bruce Natural History, Historical, and Art Museum plan will take suitable and permanent form. The next circular now being sent to those who may feel interested is fully explanatory. Notice to the public. By a certain trust deed executed by the late Robert M. Bruce and dated August 4th, 1908, there has been transferred to the undersigned securities in the sum of $50,000 in trust to use and apply such part of the principal and income as may be necessary to change and alter the late dwelling house, now a part of the Bruce Memorial Park belonging to the town, so as to make it adequate and suitable for a natural history, historical, and art museum for the use of the public, and to furnish and equip the same for that purpose. And if, after such change and alteration, any part of the principle remains, then to use and apply the same in the proper care and preservation of said museum. The trustees have duly organized and are now ready and desirous of proceeding with the performance of their duties, but they are at present without sufficient information to enable them to determine what changes and alterations, alterations should be made in the dwelling house. That is to say, how much and what part of it should be devoted to the respective departments of natural history, historical, and art. It was evidently the belief of Mr. Bruce that there were, in the town of Greenwich and vicinity, many exhibits that would be cheerfully donated to each of the departments if assurance could be given of a proper place to keep and publicly exhibit them. Before determining upon changes in the building, the trustees are extremely anxious to learn what donations of exhibits are to be made. They would, therefore, greatly appreciate any communication offering any article appropriate for either of the departments. An opportunity is now afforded for a museum in Greenwich which will be an honor to the town and a means of profitable instruction to its people. Let no inhabitant, young or old, fall to the hold or do his or her utmost to make this museum a success and second to none in any town of its size in the country. The trustees seek and hope to receive the hearty cooperation of all. Letters may be addressed to uh, either member of the Board of Trustees, and that's listed, E.C. Benedict, William L. Smith, Edmund C. Converse, W.H. Trudsdale, and Edwin L. Schofield. Well, needless to say, this past weekend was a real cold one. We got an Arctic blast <laughs> of the kind that we haven't had in a, quite a long time. Well, I've got some news for you. It was um, in uh, late January, early February, that um, the Greenwich News reported that someone that is very, very famous and associated with the North Pole came to Portchester over in um, in New York State, next door to Greenwich, and a number of uh, Greenwich people went to um, uh, to meet him. The person that I am referring to, of course, is Lieutenant Commander Robert E. Perry, uh, and um, his lecture took place at Fair's Opera House. And the subject of his lecture was on his recent search for the North Pole, which apparently he eventually found or got close to. Well, you know, there's some um, dispute about that, but um, who knows? Anyway. 
This was published in the Greenwich News uh, on February 8th, 1907. So uh, the story goes as follows. It says, Explorer Perry, interesting lecture on his recent search for the North Pole. Greenwich people attended. Quite a large number of Greenwich people went to Portchester last Friday night to hear Lieutenant Commander Robert E. Perry lecture at Fair's Opera House on his recent search for the North Pole. The Opera House was packed with many having to stand in the rear of the hall, but so interesting was the lecture and so close was the attention given it that all could hear equally well. From the first, the intrepid explorer, whose appearance was greeted with hearty applause, dashed into the theme of his discourse as it as if he were again striving to reach the pole. One was taken with him on board the Roosevelt, and the whole party set out on the dangerous trip. Most interesting was the voyage of the great little vessel, as she plowed her way through masses of floating ice or corralled in an ice flow, floating at the will of the ice and sea in constant danger of being crushed between the great masses of looming mountains high above the ship. Those would be ice mountains, I assume. Fast time was made through open seas, of course. Then days would be lost while the Roosevelt steer steel plow was breaking its way through ice jams higher than the vessel's decks. What made the story of the voyage more interesting was the wonderful pictures of the ship's fight with the ice and the dangerous ice-laden seas. All through the explorations, members of the party took exposures and secured some of the most remarkable pictures ever taken. So um, to go back, uh, well, to, to say this, that apparently this was photographed and these were shown to the, um, to the audience, I suppose, uh, in the form of uh, slides on a big screen. Back to the story. The Roosevelt went into winter quarters in the ice on September 5th, 1905, and the vessel was made snug for the winter by freezing together a two-foot armor plate of ice around her deckhouses. On October 12th, the sun went down and not to appear again until the 6th of the day of March 1906. That's a long time to be dark. In this, this was a time of testing and preparation for the dash for the pole, which the dogs and with the dogs and sleds. The start was made with the sledges at the approach of dawn, February fifteenth. The dogs started out on their journey at a fast pace. The Eskimos and explorers running beside the sledges, sleds rather, or sledges. No, that's right. For uh, some few days, the party found comparatively smooth ice. Then the, the carriers were encountered um, great rifts uh, in the ice field, which closing up, let's see, form almost insurmountable ridges of ice. Three courses uh, were, uh, are left in the Explorer. Oh, three courses are left to the Explorer. He must go to the right or to the left in an endeavor to find a way around or by the fastest labor with axes and, and picks cut away over the ice mountains. This latter way was adopted by Lieutenant Perry and much time was expended in getting over the ridge. Once more fairly smooth ice was encountered and for four days long, marches were made with men and dogs working at the greatest pressure with the inspiration always in their minds that they were 
already nearer the pole than ever mortal man had been before, and the great hope that in this dash the pole would at last be reached. But the hope was not to be realized. At about noon on April 20th, after hard marching for ten consecutive hours, a great blizzard brought the wearied party to a halt. Fatigued as they were, the men would go no farther, and as the party was now separated from its base of supplies by great ice ridges and perhaps open seas, Lieutenant Perry decided he must turn back. When the picture was shown of the rough stone monument on a high pinnacle with the stars and stripes floating over it, the audience burst into most enthusiastic applause. It was, quote, farthest north, unquote, 87 degrees and 6 minutes north latitude. The greatest hardships of the explorers came on the return journey. One after another, the dogs dropped by the way and sledges were abandoned. Food gave out, and as there was no game to be had, the faithful dogs had to be killed and eaten. At length, just when men were dropping out by the way, the party came upon the tracks of a small body of men from the Perry expedition who had become lost. With the addition of the latter party and without food, hunger almost overcame the whole party. Perry was making for the northern Greenland shore, and fortunately, just in time, the land was sighted. A few Arctic hare were killed, and just food enough to brace the party was secured. Then a small herd of musk ox were seen, and all were killed. From the north of Greenland, the party again set out on its way to the Roosevelt. The vessel was reached and found to have shifted its quarters, having been in great danger in the spring and being somewhat damaged. Repairs were made, and ship and explorers turned homeward. Lieutenant Perry added at the end of his lecture that he was convinced that his method of reaching the pole was the best means so far tried. He expressed his belief that had he had last winter been a normal one, he would have reached the pole. He outlined in a most convincing manner the reasons for his desiring to reach the pole and said that one of the chief reasons was that Americans could feel that the, quote, United States owned the top of the earth, unquote. Well, one of the things that the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, is renowned for is its attachment to dogs, <laughs> cats too, but I think in my particular um, observations, it has been dogs that are the overwhelming favorite in this town, correct me if I'm wrong. I have a story that dates from February 14th, that would be Valentine's Day, in 1908, uh, I don't know if we still employ a dog warden or not. I know that back in the day, uh, the town did. And so this is a story that caught my attention, especially because when I go out on my six-mile-a-day hikes around uh, town, and it is, I do that almost every day, uh, to get my uh, free vitamin D fix, thanks to the uh, sunshine and also lots of fresh air and good exercise, Keeps me healthy, and uh, I recommend it for you, too. Anyway, this is a story uh, that, again, dates from, um, uh, from 1908, and um, the story goes as follows. Dog warden Barrett Jones had a most unpleasant job on his hands when he went over to East Portchester, that would be Byram today, collecting canines. He called at the house of John Gottschalks to take up his big St. Bernard. The dog was neither tagged nor licensed. When the dog warden came 
the St. Bernard was tied out in the backyard. Barrett had about half a dozen canines of various breeds already in his dog cart. They were of various nationalities, and the noise they kept upsetting, settling uh, with their differences was something beyond description. Well, I'll bet. On with the story. When Mr. Jones and his helper sauntered toward the backyard of their, uh, with their net and other paraphernalia, a crowd quickly gathered to see the fun. As the men closed in on the dog, Mrs. Gottschalk appeared on the scene and ordered the official to desist. Everything was in readiness, and the audience was waiting. The dog catchers were determined to go on with their work. They made a concerted dash upon the St. Bernard, but at the same moment Mrs. Gottschalk made a dash upon the dog warden and grasped him by the coattails. Barrett was pretty mad, and he wanted to say something pretty badly, but he remembered the experience which the tree trimmers had had with another East Portchester, Byron woman, some time ago, and he maintained silence. He simply sent for Officer James Nedley, who came and awed even the <laughs> violent Mrs. Gottschalk. The St. Bernard was finally hustled into the wagon. Some people imagine that the dog warden has no right to take an unlicensed dog from the owner's premises. This is a mistake. According to statute, he has a perfect right to. It is, in fact, his duty. Well, I'll be honest with you, friends, I don't know if I would try that today. <laughs> in fact, I doubt very much if today, in the 21st century, it would be very uh, legal to do that. But anyway, that's, um, that's our little slice of life and history with um, the days when Greenwich employed a dog owner from February 14th, 1908. Well, as always, my friends, I want to thank you very, very much for tuning in to the Tuesday, 7th of February, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. As always, this weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today in the 21st century as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home, and you probably do too. The Greenwich Town Rural Season Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, as always, you can contact me. In fact, I welcome your, your letters uh, and notes and things. So if you wish to write something to me, please contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and you can listen to past shows as many times as you wish and as often as you wish by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Well, on the calendar, our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday. That would be the 14th of February, 2023. That's Valentine's Day. In case you forgot. <laughs> anyway, I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I look forward to being with you again next week. You take good care now. Stay safe and well. Bye-bye.